Alright, alright, quiet and down now. Live from the Britain Yankee Pub Studios. Another Britain Yankee Craft Beer Pubcast. I can hear the pints being pulled right now. Take it away, lad. You are paying for that beer, aren't you? Pump up the bitter. Pump up the bitter. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to a very special edition of the podcast from the Britain Yankee. And I have to say, this is our second go-around of segment one, because some silly ass forgot to press record. However, we're in good shape now. Welcome, this is Pubcast 368, and this is all about wild ales. And who are we doing it with? Well, I'll tell you who we're doing it with. We're doing it on Zoom, because our two guests are down in Florida. However, my co-host, who says he knows very little about wild ales, so that's going to be interesting, because he knows about brewing is Mr. Chuck Fort, who's a senior brewing consultant from Church Street Brewing in Itasca. Hello, Chuck. How the hell are you? I'm doing pretty good. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Chuck. Well, what are you drinking, by the way? Bach. I'm drinking a Bach. Not a Doppelbach, not a Maybach, not anything, just a Bach. It's our, uh, tw- our ninth anniversary uh, beer. Bishop Bach, right? Yep, Bishop Bach. Bishop. Did you know that there's a, there's a rock called bishop rock off uh, the coast of england somewhere and there's a big lighthouse on it and when they do the when they do the shipping forecast they always mention the weather at bishop rock so there we go anyway nothing to do with bishop bock but never mind right moving on <laughs> i'll tell you what i'm drinking i'm drinking a saison and it's from roaring table brewed by mr lane fearing and it's called beth which is his good lady wife and it is absolutely fantastic. It's not wild, however. So let's see if we can find out some guys. Bring in our special guests from Florida who know about wild ales. First of all, it's somebody who's a returning fellow on our show. The Director of Operations of Barrel Amongst Brewing down in Boca Raton. It's Mr. Kevin Abbott. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing? An honor and a privilege to be here, gentlemen. I love being in the pub. I love every second we get to spend together. <laughs> and we spent a few <laughs> seconds together because I didn't press record. I know, called, I know, I know. It's called bonus time, Phil. Oh, okay. It's bonus yeah. time. <laughs> Bonehead time. There we go. Um, what are you drinking, Kevin? I am drinking an odd breed ale called La Temporada, mm. which is a tequila barrel aged wild ale. It is over two years old at this point and drinking splendidly fantastic and how convenient that you're dreaming drinking that because a very special guest uh are you are you actually in pompano beach yep i am okay all right so live from pompano beach which is where the brewery is odd breed ales wow what a coincidence is mr matt manthe and he is the mind behind all these fantastic wild ales and also the winner of a gold medal at this year's great american beer festival gabf 20 2021 and you won it for the wild ale category and what did you win win it with uh yeah so it was the it was the mixed culture brett beer category they've, they've got a couple of uh brett categories the mixed culture brett category is basically Britannomyces with souring bacteria uh which is in all of our beer. uh the beer that, that won is called oddities and outliers blend two um, the story behind that beer is a little bit long. I can get into it if you'd like. Maybe in another segment. Hold on. What are you drinking? Right now, I am drinking Illusion. This is a wild IPA that was uh, more or less like a typical IPA, uh, but it was fermented exclusively with our mixed culture of wild yeast and bacteria, and then in 16 months in French oak barrels. Wow, 16 months. That's a long time to wait for an IPA. So I have a question. I'm going to ask it now. I've always been told that IPAs lose their hop uh, characteristics if you don't drink them within you know, a certain amount of time. Now, triples, triples may be different you know, because they're not really around the hops. That's at least what I think. How can you maintain a hop characteristic for 16 months in an IPA? 
Yeah, so that's that's a great question. It's definitely not a typical IPA. Uh, you know, it's it's brewed more or less like a like an IPA with the focus being on hop aroma and flavor as opposed to bitterness. So the, the IBUs are only about thirty five, so so relatively light for uh, for an IPA. Uh, but really, the the secret ingredient, uh, if I were to give it away, is is our yeast culture. It's Britannomyces. So Britannomyces acts as a natural preservative. It's uh, constantly scavenging oxygen. Uh, oxygen, you know, is, is really one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, enemies of beer, uh, whether it be beer that's aging or beer that's already in, in its package. But uh, Britannomyces can live for, for several years, if not even decades, under the right conditions. And it will continue to scavenge the oxygen, which helps to preserve that hop flavor. But it also helps to create new flavors that you can't really taste in a typical IPA. Uh, you know, this, this beer is, it's got a lot more going on than, than just the hops. Uh, you know, to some people that have never had a beer like this, which is probably most people, um, some of them say, you know, this isn't an IPA, but it's, you know, it's got all these other flavors going on. And, and yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, but, you know, it's, I, I decided to call it a wild IPA uh, because, like I said, it is essentially brewed like an IPA. It's the, it's the fermentation and aging and then the bottle conditioning, the dry hopping process uh, that set it apart and make it a little bit more unique. And I think you also uh, brewed a wild Oktoberfest because uh, Chuck is, um, has brewed, one of I think, one of the best Oktoberfests in this area with his, um, what's the name of it? I forgot oh, what the name is. Um, or well, it's just I task a fest. That's why it's. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I, I drew a complete blank there for a second. Yeah, I task a fest. So it's a great, you, it's a great beer, guys. It's not just you guys. It's not just hometown. You know, blowing that up. It's a great beer. It's well, one of my favorites from uh, from Church Street. Fantastic, and and yeah, you've tasted it. So, what was your wild Oktoberfest? A similar thing, adding Britannomyces. Yeah, more or less. So it, it was it was brewed like an Oktoberfest. So that was actually a collaboration that I did with uh, the tank down in Miami. Long story short, and uh, maybe this isn't the most flattering story, but uh, the tank decided to do batches for Oktoberfest. Uh, and this is going back to, I believe, 2017, I believe, when this beer was, was brewed. Um, the first batch that they brewed, uh, and, and by the way, I should preface this with saying that I'm really good friends with the guys at the tank. Uh, their brewmaster is also uh, a really great guy, um, great brewer, um, definitely a perfectionist, which I, I feel like I can to a certain extent relate with. But at any rate, they, they brewed their Oktoberfest. The brew came out great, but it was a little bit drier than they wanted. Typical breweries would just say, you know, it's a great beer. It doesn't have any flaws, doesn't have any off flavors. Well, um, they decided to brew another batch specifically with the intent of making it a little bit more full-bodied than they wanted uh, in order to blend those two batches together and achieve overall the character that they wanted. Um, when they did that, they ended up having a little bit of extra volume. And uh, the brewer called me up and said, hey, you know, I got, I got some Oktoberfest. It's past QC. It's a, it's a great beer. I, I don't have any, any tanks if you want some. And so I, I figured, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, I know you make great beer. I want to I want to see what I can do with this. So, uh, so I decided to put it in one of my punch-ons for a year and, uh, and see what happens. And it essentially created a, a, a style known as Beer to Guard, uh, which is a, a farmhouse lager-ish type beer. Mm-hmm. It has some similarities to Saison, but it's, but it's more malty, more full-bodied. It, it really is essentially brewed uh, like a Beer to Guard or like a um, uh, Oktoberfest, rather. But uh, when I was trying the, the beer out of the barrel... Uh, I believe this would have been like in June or July. I started thinking, man, you know, this, this still has retained a lot of that Oktoberfest character and it, it tastes great. And nobody in South Florida knows what the hell a beer to guard is. Oktoberfest uh, is either, but at least it'll sound more interesting, right? You know, we actually just finished serving the, the last keg of it that I had, you know, from that, that batch that was brewed back in 2017. Um, yeah, it's kind of a cool beer. I'm really happy with how it turned out. And, you know, I can only take some of the credit for that because, again, it, it was brewed at the tank. And funnily enough, uh, we here in this area do know what a beer to guard is because there is one of the older brewing companies in the area, Two Brothers Brewing, 
who created Domain DuPage or Domain DuPage, because we're in DuPage County. And um, I always thought it was an amber, but then they said, no, it's it's a beer de garde. I went, okay. <laughs> Chuck, do you think it's a beer de garde? Well, you can go it's either way. It's, it doesn't have any um, any wild character to a desperate No, definitely not. So, okay, so you, 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 you're taking styles that everybody knows and making them a little wild. How does the relationship between Kevin, you in Barrel of Monks, and you, Matt, in Odd Breed Owls, how far apart is Bucca Raton and P- Pompano Beach? It's about 20 minutes. You know, it, it's like anything. It depends on how it's down here. Uh, but it's, it's not far. Uh, Boca is a couple towns north of me. So how did you get the relationship going, Kevin? I mean, Matt has been a friend and a colleague in the beer industry for a long time. He, uh, he, we kind of started our breweries independently of one another. We were not linked in the very beginning. And uh, I was uh, a head brewer at a place called Funky Buddha in Fort Lauderdale as we were scaling up our operations. And Matt was our, uh, our, um, consultant. Consultant, thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we we formed a relationship there. It was really great for us to work together. And some years later, lo and behold, we both have our own breweries. And Matt is in his, and I'm, I want really want him to describe his process of of making beer because it's so interesting. But Matt produces wort at other breweries now. At this point, pretty much predominantly at Barrel Monks, but early on at several different breweries to bring his wort back and ferment in-house. So because we were already kind of working together and he was producing wort at our place and we knew each other, when his original partner kind of wanted to get out, it was a, a very easy fit for us to kind of slide in there, buy up those shares, become partners, work together, and really help each other out. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a two-way door for information and resource sharing distribution, a lot of the things that go uh, really well. And also Barrel Amongst is a a specifically a Belgian style brewery, a very niche. And Matt in doing Wildales is even somehow more niche. So uh, I think if we ever do get any other uh, relationships, we have to do someone that predominantly does flat, uh, warm beers. I think we have to go continually go more and more esoteric and harder to sell. I think that's uh, that's my my goal in life. Apparently, you mean just like an English pub, <laughs> flat go. warm beers. That's what. Yeah. So I was actually drinking a pint of uh, what the brewer called West End Bitter today from Art History Brewing in Geneva. Geneva folks here will know them. Um, and uh, somebody said, "Wow, this is kind of light and and it's and it's." kind of warm no it's room temperature but (laughs) so okay great um so you guys have come together and and i have to say matt the beers that the couple of beers that i have had from you have have been just stunning you know they're really excellent brews i would love to come down there and taste it in your tasting room which seems to be quite small right you're kind of a um a small area is that am I, and that's only from pictures i'm looking at in the web website yeah it's uh so it's a very compact operation i would say you know i i i started the uh the business on paper anyway back in 2015 we opened uh fall of 2017 so we're almost four years old now and uh you know i i didn't have any money because i've been working as a brewer forever and i'm, I'm still a brewer <laughs> still have no money well, wait a minute. Okay, folks, you can't see him, but I don't think he's a real brewer because he does not have a bald head. Uh, uh, he does not have a long beard, mm-hmm. and <laughs> he's just like a regular guy. Okay, I sorry, have, Matt, go on. <laughs> no, and I'm just going to jump in here. Matt and I have considered, because I used to be a brewer myself. I'm not anymore, but I used yeah. to be. You and don't look like Matt, one either. Yeah, Matt and I considered forming the Society of Beardless Brewers, and we were gonna <laughs> we're gonna take it on the road. We're gonna make sure that we our brothers were not being oppressed, right? Other people, other fair baby faced people like us. Um, but don't let don't let them pick on you, Matt. No, no, no. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the barrel room or back in the tap room, <laughs> a real small operation. Uh, so you know, we're our tap room, our production facility. It's twenty five hundred square feet. I don't have a brew house. Uh, that was that was done on purpose. You know, our our uh, slogan is flavor from fermentation, and what we are is a fermentation space. So that's that's what we focus. You know, I still am the one that's that's brewing my my own recipes. 
uh, right now I'm brewing exclusively at, at Barrel of Monks, um, and I can get into that a little bit more later. But um, but yeah, we're in, the, in that 2,500 square feet. I've I've got a small office. I've got a couple bathrooms. I've got our tasting room. We've got a walk-in cooler, and we have about 10,000 gallons of beer in barrels. Um, but well, that's that's it. <laughs> you know, we have a warehouse that's about three miles away. That's uh, that's not open to the public. That space is used almost exclusively for bottle conditioning. Uh, but I also store my empty bottles over there. I, I store our kegs over there. All of our kegs are naturally conditioned, uh, just like our bottles are. Uh, so nothing is force carbonated. It's really a, uh, a relatively minimalist product. And, and what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, it's, it's all real ingredients. I, I don't use any processing aids. Uh, it, it's, um, it's a very natural product in that sense. You know, it, it all has a very long shelf life, but it's, it, I, I try to have a, a relatively hands-off approach when it comes to uh, to processing the beer. Matt, uh, if um, so, do you have the wort then trucked over? Is that the deal? Yeah. So <laughs> you know, most breweries they they buy a brew house. I uh, I, I leased a uh, Silverado 1500 and had a custom-made trailer and got some uh, some of these 550-gallon stainless steel totes. So. I, I uh, sanitize, I clean sanitize my tank and my hoses uh, the night before I brew. I bring my, my hoses, uh, the tank already strapped down into the trailer. Uh, I drive that over to Barrel of Monks in the morning. I, I brew my recipe and then, you know, instead of transferring the wort into one of their tanks, I just transfer it into my, my tote while it's, you know, strapped down in the trailer. Yeah, and, and that sounds like it's an absolutely amazing and individual uh, process. I don't think I've ever heard anything like that before. Um, I know that Chuck also has a very important question, and he's going to ask that just as we come back from this short break. And we're back from the break. Chuck, what the hell was your question, dude? Oh, I was just talking about a lot of people get confused between wild beers or, uh, or, or sours. Quite often they, they, they think, oh, you're using, you know, Brett, so it's going to be sour or it's not sour or whatever. But it, it sounds like you guys are actually doing both. You're, you're souring and using wild cultures as well? Yes. So basically, uh, so I do a few beers that are spontaneously fermented, meaning I'm not adding any yeast or bacteria uh, whether it be my, my mixed culture or something bought from a, a yeast lab, it's just stuff that's, that's naturally around in the air. I do make some spontaneous beers, um, but the majority of the beers that I made that I make are, are with our mixed culture of wild yeast and bacteria. So those, those are all uh, various strains of Britannomyces, uh, several wild strains of Saccharomyces. There are some Saison cultures in there as well. Uh, but basically all of these beers or all these, these yeast strains, I should say, are, are, separated by about eight or nine years from a, a yeast lab, meaning that at one point they were all purchased from a yeast lab. I, I have the whole list of everything that's was in our mixed culture when I put it all together, but it's not, it's probably not all uh, the same. I, in fact, I know it's not all the same now. I'm sure that some of the strains have uh, fallen out. I'm sure that there are probably some that I've picked up from the environment along the way. But, you know, originally I had 16 strains of Britannomyces, which is uh, considered a wild yeast. Um, and, and like I said, about, about six or so uh, wild Saccharomyces strains. I mean, you'll have yeast. I mean, you're not Brett in there, yeast, but then you'll also have like a little bit of lacto and some other, other cultures mixed in with it. So I actually don't have any lactobacillus in our mixed culture. I do have pediococcus though. So pediococcus. Now, do you ever work with, um, I know that some people doing sours, they, they work with uh, butyric acid, which is normally not something you want but then they feed it bread and they get uh, a certain kind of a wild beer. Have you ever tinkered with that? Yeah. So I, I know what you're talking about. That's uh, so you can convert butyric acid to ethyl butyrate uh, in the presence of the right type of Britannomyces in the right conditions. Ethyl butyrate will give you a, a nice uh, pineapple uh, sort of flavor. Um, the problem is butyric acid is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, so butyric acid, it, it's, it's most readily identifiable uh, to people as being the, the aroma of vomit. Uh, it is, it's not pleasant. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's like cheese, though, like in the nose. Sure, and it, and it can be as well. You know, a lot of this stuff is, is uh, personal perception. 
um, you know, the one one uh, way to look at the beers that I make is that they're they're full of off flavors, right? You know, I mean, if you were to my beers into a beer competition and say a, a pale ale or a lager, you know, all the comments that you would get back from the judges' scorecard, you would think that this is the worst beer that they've ever had in their life uh, because I'm really hitting all of those those so-called off flavor notes. But it it uh, it's an off flavor if it's not supposed to be there in that particular style uh and the the types of beers that i'm making of course uh i i am going after uh these these certain types of flavors but i'm going after them in balance and i i think that's one thing that maybe a lot of other brewers get wrong is that when you're when you're brewing these kind of beers you really don't want to uh to hit superlatives meaning you don't want to make a beer that's the most sour you don't want to make a beer that's the most funky or the most cheesy you want a beer that has a lot of complexity, that has a lot of balance, that, that maybe hits all those different types of notes, but it isn't going to be the most in your face in any one of those categories. Uh, I think that's what, what really builds uh, complexity in a beer. It builds drinkability. It builds a beer that, you know, tastes a little bit different with every sip. And that's that's really what I'm trying to go for. And, and Kevin, have you ever, so, so Matt comes down and, and does his brewing there. Um, have you ever kind of said, is there anything we can take from you to put into our barrel amongst beers that might be kind of a cross collaboration sort of thing? Or are you keeping it completely separate? Because your beers are very, very unique as well. And uh, you've started doing IPAs just because just because you can. Right. <laughs> just just to prove a point. Right. Uh, as uh, one of the last times we talked. So we, we've always done some barrel aging stuff and we've always had some sour beers. Uh, Matt does, if there's one thing that working with Matt has taught me is that it's, if you're going to do something, do it right and do it, you know, to the full, the fullest, uh, your fullest of ability. Uh, a lot of our sour beers we do through uh, lactobacillus. We do through some, some barrels that have picked up some wild yeast. We don't have at this point a house mixed culture like Matt does and where we can really, really control it. We can be on top of it. We can specialize in it. So we'll do a couple sour beers throughout a year. And we've leaned on Matt for some, from some, for some guidance in doing some treatments and doing some second or third fermentations on specialty beers. But honestly, unless you take the time and effort and put a beer in barrel for nine to 16 months and have the right mixed yeast culture and take it out when it's ready and really learn how to manipulate, how to use it, have the right equipment for it, you're going to make mediocre sour beers. And I think uh, we've made some pretty good ones over the years, but we certainly don't specialize in it. And nor do we have a chance, a, a desire to really do that. We have a desire to continue kind of down our road. We've done a couple collaboration beers. We call them the Barrel of Funk series. And we even started doing those before we started working together. So uh, you will have something like that that will come out in the future. But, you know, Matt will talk your ear off about the quickie sours and the kettle sours and the smoothie sours and really what that terminology has meant to his, to the business of odd breed, to the collective consciousness of the beer buying public. And uh, there's a lot of shortcuts to do it. If you're going to do it right, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of money. And that's why odd breed beers are what they are. So, you know, you say it takes a lot of time. I think when you brought the the first batch up to us, you said, you know, it took six months minimum before any beer is released. Now you're four years into your brewing cycle, I guess, or your, your brewery. Are you at a position where you know you've got beers that are now two years old, as you talked about, um, and now you're going to have beers that are consistently that age? You know, it, it kind of depends on what I'm going for, uh, because I, I do a lot of blends as well. And so, for example, the, the beer that, that we just won the gold medal for at the Great American Beer Festival, it's a blend of three beers. They're all brewed and fermented very differently. Uh, the oldest portion of that beer is right at about four years old right now. I, I brewed it before we opened. You know? So, I mean, it's uh, some of our beers really are designed uh, for aging that long. I, I brew certain beers uh, with the intent of aging them. Uh, up to or even a little bit longer than three years. Um, there are other beers that I'll that will be the same recipe, but I'll brew them just slightly differently, uh, and those will be ready to to blend, you know, after a year or so. 
Um, most of the beers that I make, though, I'm, I'm aging between one and three years. Are you you're aging them in barrels, are you then? I'm sorry? You're aging them in barrels? That's right, yeah. So everything that we produce is aged in barrels. Now, do, they, do the barrels, like, do they tend to um, evaporate? You get a lot, a lot to evaporation. I do. So I, I, uh, I top them off uh, typically after about a year. Um, it, it, it's a beer that I'm planning to age for two years or more. Um, if it's a beer that I'm planning to age for for a year to a year and a half or so, I typically do not top those off. Uh, I should also mention that I use primarily punchions. So uh, for those unfamiliar, a punchion is basically a larger than normal barrel. Uh, so my, my punchions are... Okay, hang on. I didn't hear what a punchion was. You cut out there because that was going to be one of my questions. What the hell is a punchion? <laughs> so a punchion is basically a larger than normal barrel. Uh, so our punchions are 500 liters uh, because they're they're constructed in France. Everything is metric. Uh, that's, that's 132 gallons. Uh, so whereas a typical wine barrel is usually 59 gallons. A typical whiskey barrel is is 53 gallons. So it's a bit bigger than a typical barrel. The reason that I'm using these larger barrels is for one, they have thicker staves. Uh, two, they, they let less oxygen inside the barrel. Uh, there's a slower ingress of oxygen that, that's beneficial for, for a number of reasons. But, uh, but also those larger barrels, they do result in, in less evaporation. And in my opinion, they result in better beers that have softer flavors. So while I still blend uh, a lot of the beers that I make, Probably about two thirds of the beer that I make is unblended. It's it's a recipe that is designed uh, to be just beer. Uh, and I make a lot of different beers, but for the most part, uh, you know, I have certain beers where I'm targeting, where I say, okay, this one's you know going to be ready after 14 to 18 months in barrels, or this one's going to going to need you know two to two and a half years. And you know, for the most part, that that seems to work out okay in those larger barrels, whereas. I do still occasionally use some standard size wine barrels, and those are less predictable. Uh, the product coming out of them is less consistent. It's it, they still make great beer, but uh, but I, I really prefer using the larger barrels. So my my follow on question to what you were just saying then is um, number one a foda or is it fooda? You tell me. Uh, that's bigger, right? Than than a than a puncheon. Yes. Yeah. Typically. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. You know, and these and these puncheons and barrels that you're using, Aquila. are they used beforehand? Because um, Kevin is drinking a rum barrel um, brew, so tequila. obviously that had rum in it. Tequila. Oh, tequila. Sorry, <laughs> ah, same thing. It's, it's all the same, you know. <laughs> no. So um, yeah. So it, it, it's used beforehand. Are you using used barrels, fresh barrels, or a combination thereof? So I always use barrels that have already been used to age something. Uh, so in other words, you know, you, if, you, if I were a winery, for example, typical wineries, they'll, uh, they'll buy French oak barrels or American oak barrels that are brand new. Uh, they use them anywhere from, you know, say one to four or five times. And then at that point, they just being neutral and they sell them to somebody like me. The truth is they still have flavor left in them. They still have oak flavor. And of course, they're still going to have residual flavor from whatever the previous liquids were. I'm typically not searching for the flavor that's that's from those, uh, those previous liquids, uh, except for when I buy spirit barrels. So in the case of you know me buying those tequila barrels that were used for La Temperata, uh, I want those things as fresh as I can get. And I use them once, uh, and, then I'm, and then I'm essentially finished with them. Uh, whereas our, our large punchions, uh, I got, I have 39 of them in total, uh, 20 of them. I purchased from a winery, uh, those held various types of red wine. And then I purchased 19 from a, uh, winery in Italy. All of those held Sangiovese. You know, I've used each of the bowls now for at least one beer. And so there's, there's no more wine character left in there. There is still some oak character, but it's subtle. I, I think one thing that, uh, uh, a lot of brewers, uh, as well as consumers, uh, don't quite realize with the production of wild ales is that the barrel isn't there so much for the flavor. It's there because it's a, it's a fermentation vessel. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, without going too much into the science of it, uh, Britannomyces really likes to have small amounts of oxygen present. 
uh, and so does Pediococcus, which is a souring bacteria that we use. Both of them are, are uh, considered to be aerobic or even uh, microaerophilic, meaning that it, it really likes to have a little bit of oxygen, a little bit of air present. But the oak barrels also have a, a compound called cellobios. Uh, cellobios is a sugar that's present in the oak. Uh, one way to think of that is that it's almost like a yeast nutrient for, for Britannomyces. Britannomyces is a very long, slow fermentation process. And uh, when, you, when you put it in an oak barrel, it's just it's uh, to be in there. If you take the same beer and you ferment it in stainless steel, and then you, you put some of it in a, in a barrel, you know, from that same brew and you, you compare the, the fermentation time, the overall attenuation, the flavor development, they're going to be very different. Uh, and that's also, again, part of the reason why I, I like those punchy on those larger barrels. It's just that, that I've found from my own trial and error that I, I prefer that flavor profile. That's not necessarily one of those things that's right or wrong. If you talk to another brewer that's making wild ales, they may go through a myriad of reasons of why they prefer smaller barrels over the larger ones. Uh, I think a lot of it is getting to know your mixed culture uh, how and how your, your mixed culture is going to respond in your brewery with your processes, with your mindset. Okay, well, I've got a couple of questions that follow on from that in just a second. We'll take a quick breather, have a listen to this. We'll come back and listen to Matt. we're back uh, after our final this is going to be our final segment because so far i've found this absolutely amazingly fascinating i can't believe matt that you are so into barrels and and this is the first time i've ever heard anybody talk so passionately about this side of brewing and it is a side that i really like because i like these beers so my first question is going to be what do you find a used barrel adds percentage-wise to the ABV of the finished brew? Oh, man. So that's that's a tough question. Uh, it's tough for a couple of reasons. We ask the tough questions here on the Britain Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> Quick story here. Uh, one of our, our more recent releases that we did was a, a strong ale that was aged for a total of three years in barrels. It was uh, double barrel aged. I did a few different versions of it that, according to us, uh, finished up around 15% ABV. These uh, three versions that I did that were aged a total of three years, they were all finished in spirit barrels, uh, but they were finished in smaller uh, spirit barrels, uh, 25 gallons. And part of the reason I did that was because I wanted to have a few different options. Also, the smaller the barrel, uh, the more surface area there is, meaning basically that there's more beer in contact with the wood. So you're able to extract more flavor from that barrel and in a quicker period of time. I sent those beers off to get them distillation tested. Uh, to see what the ABV was. Um, now, those beers did attenuate more than the, the 15% version, meaning that it fermented sugars that, that, um, you know, that the other beer was not able to ferment. But when I had them tested by distillation, those three beers ranged from 16.56 to 17.47% ABV. So I probably know <laughs> 1% ABV from those barrels. Uh, but it's it's hard to say exactly, you know, and the and that the the amount of uh, ABV that I pick up from those barrels is going to differ depending on the size of the barrels, depending on uh, what the spirit was inside. You know, rum, for example, uh, especially uh, Caribbean rum, it's typically like like 160 plus proof, uh, you know, coming out of those barrels. That's so that's about like 80 percent alcohol. I mean, it's, it's dangerous. You know, it's obviously uh, watered down when it's when it's uh, um, you know, bottled and sold. But uh, but the point being, you're going to pick up a lot of ABV from a wet rum barrel more so than you would from, from say, a scotch barrel or, or a bourbon barrel. You know, it's uh, it also, it depends on so many things like your, your uh, aging temperature, your humidity level, uh, of course, the amount of time that it's in a barrel. So, you know, I it's a long way of me saying, I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> Kevin? A long way to get there. What's the answer, Kevin? Uh, anytime you barrel age something, you're going to pick up some alcohol. There you go. You're supposed to say 42. <laughs> <laughs> Big Douglas Adams fan. Yeah. Are you? Okay. 
Chuck, you you've just recently so the one that I that I showed you earlier that I'll send on down to you is the uh, uh, double barrel doppelbox. So Church Street makes a great doppelbox pontificator, one of my favourites. Chuck, uh, not because you're here, it just is a damn good beer. Now, what's the alcohol on that one? Uh, we got it at ten, uh, so it's normally what, the pontificator's ten. Well, it's eight percent normally, right? Oh, right. Okay, that's what I'm asking. The pontificator right. is eight percent, right? So you know, it's been sitting in uh, bourbon barrels. So you can, you know, like uh, Matt was saying, you know, it's like take a guess, so one and a half, maybe two percent increase. So there you go. And then you put it into a port wine barrel, right? That's what. Well, that's yeah, what I'm getting to. Some of it went into port wine barrels, and, and some of it went into a uh, hill. Uh, uh, bourbon barrels and then uh blended the two after a year well it turned out bloody awesome i can tell you you've done it in barrels but you're doing the the cultures the the brett rices are being added to it which is different right to a normal barrel aged beer so we're talking about barrels but it's not a barrel aged beer right yeah, fermentation is already complete so this is just for aging Okay, and Matt, you're not doing you're not doing real barrel age. You're not going to put anything into Fobab, you know, Festival of Barrel Age Beers, right? I, I was actually just talking with Kevin about that earlier. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you are? Maybe, yeah. Oh. Well, the the beers are. I'll jump in there. The the beers are barrel aged. I mean, they are. Yep. As Matt said, they're going to pick up some subtle notes of oak. It's just not the dominant flavor. Correct. Yeah. Uh, unless Matt is trying to make a tequila barrel beer or a bourbon barrel beer or a rum barrel beer, which Aubrey absolutely does from time to time, uh, all the beers are going to get the subtle nuances and oaky flavor, but they're not as I think what Matt said earlier was was perfect. They're not this one thing is not the star in the American brewing culture. We often say, well, this has to be the sourest, the the hoppiest, the fruitiest. Mm -hmm. This bourbon barrel, barrel beer has to just taste like bourbon. To what, what I say to that is just go drink bourbon <laughs> because that's available in stores if you're not a, if you're not aware. If you're looking for subtlety and nuance and flavors that are going to play off each other, then you're looking for complexity and building a flavor profile. And that's the thing that many people miss when they come to wild ales and sour beers and however you want to use that terminology because mm. it's it's so nebulous to people. They hear Saison, wild ale, sour ale, you know, uh, wild fermentation. And they say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And within the odd breed category, to say that all the beers are sour, well, all the beers have some tartness to them but every beer is not made the same within that, that, uh, that pantheon of all those beers. Ooh, so that's a I big think, word. I it, was my word of the damn, I, it was my word of the damn the calendar. <laughs> I had to get it in at some point. Uh, but you know, you have, you're trying to build that subtlety, that complexity and yeah. oak barrel aging is part of that. The mixed culture is part of that. The, the malt bill, the hop bill, it's all part of that. The great thing about beers like this is that it gives you an extra tool in the toolbox. You don't just have, well, these are my malts and these are my hops. And this is my water profile and this is my yeast. Well, I've got all those things. Plus I've got all these other tools to play with. And that's what makes these beers timeless. And when people really try these beers and they give them a shot and they don't just think sour is bad, the people are blown away. How long can you keep one of your beers? Obviously you've had it for you know 16 months or whatever the hell it was two years can you keep these beers for x number of years is there a finite is there a best buy date i guess is the question so are you referring to the beers in the barrel no the, the, the beers that you make so you make beers you put them in the bottles you send them out do you put a best buy date on them or something like that so um you know i, I tell our distributors that our bottles will age well for at least five years you know, a lot of it has to do with when is a beer no longer good? You know, that, that can be a kind of a convoluted uh, uh, question. You know, well, if, I know when it tastes like shit. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's subjective. Phil. Oh, that's oh subjective. that sounds like an untapped <laughs> comment. <laughs> well, I mean, the I, I guess what I'm getting at is it depends on what the drinker wants and expects from the beer. Right. So 
you know, we, we make some beers that are with fresh uh, local Florida fruit. Um, those beers are going to have their most vibrant, uh, most, you know, probably exciting fruit flavor when they're, say, within two years of the, the bottling date, uh, probably preferably within about a year. That doesn't mean the beer is going to go bad after a year or two. Uh, it's still going to continue to evolve, but that fruit flavor is going to drop off some. It may not be uh, as exciting as it was when the beer was was first released. Um, but but the beer is is for the most part not really going to oxidize for at least five years or so. And and that is again because of Britannomyces, because of the oxygen scavenging qualities that it has. Um, but you know there there are other beers that I make and. I, I think, okay, well, this one tastes pretty good, but to me, it, this is going to be a really good beer to age for, for five years or more. And, you know, that's, that's because of my personal preference. It's also a little bit of guesswork, uh, you know, when you're, when you're making a beer and then also even after it's, it's finished and it's in the bottle, you know, it, it, I mean, it depends on how it's stored. You know, I, we have a lot of people who kind of collect our bottles and uh, they ask me, you know, how long do you think I should hold on to this one? Or how do you think I should store it? Should I do it upright or should I age it horizontally? And typically my, my answer is, you know, age it between 60 and 65 degrees. If it has a cork in the bottle, age it on its side. You'll get more yeast character, more, more yeast oh. uh, development from that. Uh, it's not to keep the cork wet. That's a, uh, a little bit of a misconception, uh, I think, from the wine industry. If uh, the beer has carbonation in it, you don't need to worry about keeping the cork wet. The carbonation pressure itself will, will keep the cork intact and in good shape. But, you know, there are uh, breweries in, in Belgium, uh, breweries that apparently are, are required by law to put a best before date on their bottles. Mm. And so most of those Lambic brewers that are, that are making traditional Lambic products, they're putting a best before date of 20 years. And <laughs> that's like the longest that they can they can, uh, you know, legally write on the bottle or if they, uh, they just kind of got together and said, all right, guys, uh, let's stick it to the Belgian government and tell them that our product's good. So I want to jump in there about the aging thing and the, the subjectivity of it. I don't know how you guys feel. And I know that, you know, different levels of the industry and, and fandom and all this kind of stuff. But I've personally stood around a group of 10 beer geeks of different pe people in the industry, people that were just collectors, people that were traders and watched them as they drank a beer, uh, for instance, like a, a 15, 20 year old Thomas Hardy's, right? Yeah, yeah. And watched as they drank a beer that legitimately tasted like soy sauce <laughs> and was just gross and all trying to justify how great the beer was. Right. Because in that thing, someone's had this beer they bought online on eBay or they've had it in their cellar forever and they really want it to be great. And then they all pour it around and everyone's like, oh, yeah, this is really good. And no one's enjoying it and everyone's making weird faces. Uh, I think in general, the aging process is such a subjective thing. My partner, uh, one of my partners and Matt's partner, obviously, as well, because we're all part of the same family at uh, Bear Lamont's, Bill McPhee, he Everything he loves, I think most of the beers he thinks are great at a certain age, a quad, a triple, I think are not good anymore. But he'll love the flavor of a five-year-old triple or quad. And I'll go, man, I wish we would have drank this three years ago. Not that it's bad, but I just wish I would have drank it when it was younger. <laughs> but he loves that flavor profile and is drawn to it, whereas I'm drawn to the other side of it. So that subjective avenue of it really comes down to these beers change. They develop flavors. They change flavors over time. So when you're talking to someone about this, when should I drink this? What are you looking for? Matt said it perfect. Are you looking for that big fruit flavor? Well, then drink it now or drink it in a year. Are you looking to develop something different, something more funky, uh, some a little bit of, I mean, with my beers, particularly at Bear Lamont's, like more oxidation, more caramel flavors? Well, then hold on to it for a couple more years. Or, or better yet, tell them to buy three bottles and drink one year. That yeah, is exactly, exactly that, that's yeah. the best way to do it. Yeah, that's the best way to well, do it. Well, and, and, and it's interesting you should mention Thomas Hardy because I have two bottles here of 1988 Thomas Hardy ale, 
Okay, which one of these bottles, and I'm holding them up to the camera for people who are on the audio version, one has a crappy label, the other one has a perfect label. <laughs> which one do you think tasted like crap and one tasted magnificent? <laughs> I'm going to go with the counterintuitive one because I, I feel like that's what you're trying to... No, no okay. you're wrong. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was this. So the, the crappy label means that they didn't store it properly which is I, i'm going yeah. back to what matt was saying about storing the beer well, and i'm that, really I interested remember that beer. i remember that beer and it was molded that's right yeah we had it <laughs> it was molded this one was perfect it was intense fantastic so um i i talked to um the brewer from pollyanna brian pavola and uh he always said you know, I said to him, oh, yeah, these are great barrel-aged beers. You know, when sh I'll keep one. How long do you think I should keep it for, you know, until, until it's going to taste good? He always used to say, I put it in a bottle now for you to drink now. It's great as far as I'm concerned. But if you want to keep it for a while, go ahead. Don't keep it for more than a year. Drink it in a year. So I've always got bottles that I like to drink in a year's time to see if it changes. Now, having heard what Matt says... <laughs> No, that's that's all going by the by. If I have some of Matt's beers, I want to hang on to them till I'm like ninety five. <laughs> it all really depends on what kind of beer it is, though. And you know, the the key thing that that gives our beer a long shelf life, uh, in in part, is bottle conditioning. In barrel beers, uh, a lot of them are bottle conditioned as well, and benefit from extended aging because of that. The the bottle conditioning is consumes the oxygen that's in the headspace of the, of the bottle when you're filling. Uh, I think it also gives you a better mouthfeel. Um, but you know, in addition to all that, we've, we've got retainers. That's really the, that key uh, differentiating factor. And, you know, a typical yeast strain, it's going to die without any uh, nutrients or sugar to ferment. It's going to die within, you know, a month or two. Uh, maybe it'll last longer than that if you keep it cold and, you know, if it's uh, otherwise not a stressed yeast. But, Britannomyces, it, it doesn't really need, you know, good quality living conditions to stay alive. Uh, it'll, you know, when I went to brewing school in, in Berlin and VLB, uh, and one of, uh, one of the guys I was there with, he's the, I believe it's sixth generation brewmaster at August Schell. Uh, August Schell is an awesome traditional German style brewery in New Ulm, Minnesota. And he oh, yeah. uh, purchased bottles of Berliner Weiss on eBay. And uh, while we were over there in Germany, and these bottles, I want to say, were like 20 years old. And he bought them with the intention of mailing them back to his brewery in Minnesota and having his lab see if they could isolate the Britannomyces strains out of the bottle. One of the bottles had living Britannomyces, the other one did not. But, I mean, these, these bottles were literally a couple decades old. Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to, to do that with, with really any other kind of fermented beverage that's uh that's a, a typical saccharomyces strain of yeast whether it's ale or lager yeast it's just it's not going to live anywhere close to that long uh, so when you get bottles of your beer is there going to be as a good friend of mine mark nasky said is there gonna be any good stuff on the bottom you know when you pour it out it's bottle conditioned you're gonna get that really kind of thick milky yeasty stuff so are you gonna have any good stuff in the bottom of your bottles yeah so there will be a little bit uh right. you know we, we um I don't do any filtration. Uh, I do, um, uh, I guess we call uh, straining the beer, basically meaning that you know, if I'm transferring beer off of fruit or dry hops, I'm pushing it through a stainless steel strainer that has uh, you know, very, very small pore size, um, but it's plenty big enough for, for yeast to get through. Our beer falls pretty, pretty clear uh, in the, the barrels. So, you know, I, I obviously do... Um, uh, some testing on the beer before I decide that I want to blend it or that I want to, um, you know, package it up into bottles, whatever it may be. But the, the first, you know, clue that I have uh, with, with how ready a beer is, is, is really just the appearance. If I have a pale beer that I'm aging in barrels, uh, whether it's one year or three years old, uh, I know if that beer is, is close to being ready or is ready just based on how clear it is. If it looks like a, like a filtered Pilsner, then I know it's ready to go. And the reason for that being that the yeast and the bacteria naturally flocculate out of solution. They, they fall down to the bottom of the barrel once essentially there's nothing left for them to eat. And so, you know, I, I am transferring the beer, um, you know, into our packaging tank. I am adding a little bit of fresher beer 
um, that has some active yeast in it. But the beer still falls pretty clear in the bottle. And part of that also is, is our mineral content. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm using the, uh, the city water in Boca Raton. It, it goes through a charcoal filter. It's the same water profile, more or less, that Barrel of Monks is using. You know, we, we do make some adjustments on brew day, depending on what we're making. But, you know, the, the water quality in, uh, in Belgium, pretty much all of Belgium, is, is pretty notoriously hard. Uh, that's not great for a lot of styles, but it's great for Belgian styles. And it's great for, for the beers that I make, which really are, are Belgian, heavily Belgian influenced. And, uh, but that higher mineral content also means that you end up with a clearer product. So, uh, you know, there are definitely other breweries within our niche that have a much larger yeast cake at the bottom of their bottles, uh, than we do. And that typically also have beers that are more hazy than ours. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I would say obsessed over the clarity, but, uh, but I like clear beer. You know, I, I've made plenty of pills. Day. I love pills. And, uh, you know, I want that to be clear, even if it's unfiltered, it, it shouldn't look like a hazy IPA. Well, um, I, uh, all I can say is that, you know, your beers, even though I've only had a small sample, have been fantastic. Uh, I am volunteering at Fobab this year. So hopefully if you do put something in, <laughs> I'll be able to get a good sample of it. <laughs> and um, we're, we're coming up. I mean, it's late there where it's uh, getting late to be 10 o'clock your time in Florida. I don't know. Kevin obviously has to get to bed because he's got a youngster to look after as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I'm not talking about your head brewer. <laughs> um, Matt, uh, absolutely fascinating. We could carry on for hours talking about because so many questions have popped up in my mind. I'm not a brewer. But I know what goes into making beer, and your side of it is completely different to anything I think that Chuck has done. Chuck, tell me what you think after having listened to uh, to Matt for a while. Well, I know I, I'm not brewing sours because <laughs> there's a, a whole other world and a whole lot of uh, a whole lot. Uh, I, I do some sours, but uh, obviously uh, not at the level you're at. I have to say, you must be a very niche brewery, and is there any other brewery that is similarly doing similar things to what you're doing? So in Florida, not really. Um, and, and when I say not really, I mean there's nobody else, to my knowledge anyway, in the southeast of the United States that's that's focused on on just wild ales. Um, there, now there is a brewery. Uh, I'm, I'm good friends with the guys over at Green Bench. They're over in St. Petersburg. Uh, awesome brewery. They, they do uh, some really awesome lagers. They do IPAs, but they do also have a building that's dedicated just uh, for the production of, of wild ales, barrel-aged wild ales. Mm. I also was a consultant for them uh, many years ago, uh, actually when I first moved to Florida uh, to help them get their brewery started. But I'm, I'm good friends with the owners over there. Uh, the, the, one of the owners and, and brewmaster over there, Chris Johnson, awesome guy. Uh, and really does a, a phenomenal job across the board on the, the beers. That they do. But, you know, getting into these kind of beers, it's, uh, it's tough. It's, uh, you know, I, I got into making these kind of beers first out of curiosity. I was, I was uh, brewing at Thomas Creek Brewery in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, we did a good bit of production, uh, you know, beer brewing there. Uh, we also did some contracts. But uh, we, we brewed all styles pretty much under the sun, except for beers with, uh, with wild yeast and souring bacteria. And my boss, uh, you know, rightfully so, was, uh, was concerned about, about having that contaminated his equipment, you know, and, and not just potentially in our beers, but the contract beers too. When I, when I was like, all right, so we can do all these styles, but not these ones? Like, I, I want to learn more about these ones. So that's, that's kind of how I got interested in it. I was homebrewing. I made some stuff. Uh, basically, I would take the wort or some beer home, found bacteria to it. I quickly realized that making these styles was really hard. And uh, the beers I was making, honestly, were not good. Um, I feel like I could make other styles pretty well. Uh, you know, they were definitely drinkable. They were acceptable. We, we won uh, some awards at the Great American Beer Festival. But uh you know, it was in part frustrating, but also um, kind of exciting that there was this, you know, new realm of, of brewing that, that I didn't know much about. There wasn't much information out there about it. And I didn't know anybody else making the stuff either. And so uh, that that uh, kind of fueled my interest in, in wild beer. Uh, I guess this was about 13, 14 years ago. 
Yeah, and I think there's a place in Colorado. Um, I'm trying to think of it. It was Crooked Stave. That's what, right? Didn't they do a whole bunch of, of wild ales and kind of wacky beers, if you will? Sure. Yeah. So they, they uh, started out originally doing a lot of uh, 100% Britannomyces fermentations. Okay. Yeah, they do a lot of styles now, actually, too, not just styles of there, there's a lot of breweries uh, throughout the U.S. that make these kind of beers. There's less and less that only make these kind of beers, I, I would say. Yeah. And uh, you have a lot of breweries, you know, uh, in the old world in Europe that have kind of pioneered these styles. And uh, I, I will say one of the things I'm most proud of is that when we get people that really know the cantillons of the world, that understand the the complexity, the the timelessness of those styles, mm -hmm. they drink Oddbreed and they say this belongs in that. And I'll say that because Matt won't most likely, but I, I have heard this. I've heard this from people that have traveled and been visited our place, our, our, our brewery Barrel Among from Belgium, and have drank Oddbreed beers either on bottle or on draft. And, uh, and just people that are just really, really understand the styles they are sought after people are looking to trade for them from across the country, uh, across the planet. And it's, uh, it's, it's really nice to be connected with the brewery that has, that takes such pride in what they do. And also that sparks such interest and passion on, from the beer drinker that knows when they get something, it's going to be something special. And I'll, I'm going to put myself into that category because I love what I call a journey beer. And you, I think, Kevin, you called it one with differing characteristics. A journey beer for me is something when I take the first taste, I get first impression. Then the second one, I get something different. The third one, okay, I kind of know what this beer is all about. But then as I continue to sip it, I still get different, differing flavors. And, you know, unfortunately, my, my taste buds are requiring stronger flavors as I get older. But some beers really are just a joy to drink yeah and and i we we talk about on the podcast um leather chair and cigar beers and they're typically those heavy duty imperial stouts and bourbon barrel age the ones that you want to sit down at the end of the evening and you want to really kind of consume it slowly well matt your beers from the very few i've had are the beers that I want to consume slowly at any time of the evening. So I raise my glass to you and uh, your fantastic approach to what I'm, I mean, I got still got so many questions. Maybe we can come back for part two. But part two. Part two, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, Matt, I can't thank you enough. Um, ch uh, Chuck, have you learned anything? Uh, yes, I have. Good. That's, all. <laughs> That's fantastic. So um, we don't have people with us at the moment, but I have a second glass. So what we always do at the end of this is I say good night from me, and Chuck says... Good night from him. And we go, cheers. What a lovely clang. Cheers to Odd Breed Ales. And I also have to say thank you very much, Kevin, for setting this up. Um, it's been an absolute honor to talk to you, Matt. And Kevin, you, Barrel Amongst beers are always top. My last and final question. When the hell are they going to come up to Illinois? Find me a distributor. Uh, yeah, I know you've had a few distributor issues recently down no, there. Yeah, we have. We have. <laughs> Listen, uh, find, me a find me a distributor. I'll get Oddbreed and Barrel Amongst up on the next truck. All right. Can I come? Can I just self-distribute? If I drive down, I'll bring them back up. <laughs> Listen, if you if you, if you listen, submit a plan to me via email, we'll see if we can work it out. Oh shit, he wants admin now. <laughs> I'm a very professional guy, Phil. Come well, I on, know we gotta you get are. our ducks in a row. <laughs> okay, uh, thanks very much indeed, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Matt Manthe from Odd Breed Ales. If you're down in Pompano Beach, please visit them, and also Kevin Abbott from Barrel Monks. Please visit them. But I do want to throw this out there. If you're on the Osner app, um, and which is a, a, a craft beer app, 
that is uh, widely downloadable throughout the entire country. Oddbreed is on there. You can go on there and check out the Oddbreed beers. We cannot ship right now to other states, but that might be changing cool. in the upcoming uh, you know months and so forth. So follow Oddbreed so you can see those things. We are also distributed in, in California. We're distributed oh. in, uh, well, I mean, what is it? Maryland, Delaware. We're distributed in Pennsylvania. We're distributed in, Mo- in Montana. Um, we have a lot of places that you can find our beer. We're working on, we're working on Illinois. Come on, help me out. Help, <laughs> I told you, find me a distributor. We'll get up there, but you can follow odd breed. We do have a lot of, we have specialty beers coming out every single month. And if you find a trading partner down in Florida, you can get your hands on some of this beer and it's very boutique, small batches. And when you have a chance to try the beer, you're not, you're going to, you're going to want to, you're going to want more. And I think Phil, you're, you're the perfect example. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I am a perfect example of something. I know that Uh, all I can say is that um, I've had them. I love them. Uh, Chuck, you've had had the pleasure of at least having one. Hope it was memorable. I'm glad they, uh, they send you your beers because I come over and drink them. <laughs> you'll be get, you'll be getting a box soon. Phil. Well, you'll be getting a box. Soon. I'm going to reciprocate. Uh, send down uh, a few beers up here as well. That, no, uh, one question is the questions go on. <laughs> Why, this is your last one. Okay. You get one more. Why are you not doing it in cans? Is that because you feel the bottle is a better representation of your beer, a better holder of the beer, if you will? Uh, that's, I guess, a multi-part question. I, oh, uh, shit. Hang on. We're <laughs> going to be here for a while, guys. <laughs> okay. Hold that one for part two. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. I'm going to give you another clang. Cheers. All the best. Take care. And uh, I'll be down there next year. Definitely. It's cu- I'm coming down. Uh, watch out. The Brit's coming. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you, Matt. Thank Thanks, you. Chuck. Thanks, Kevin. Britain Yankee. Britain Yankee. I'll have a pint. Go, give us a pint. You got any tetanus? Uh, A pint, please, Bob. Give me another pint.